You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Words on a page. A turntable. A barn. A fish. Defendant Hicks was, among other things, incredibly stupid. He accidentally fired his gun into a neighbor's apartment below him and injured that neighbor. So the police arrived, and a detective saw a stereo set and thought, that looks like something we just got a report on being stolen. So while they were investigating this shooting, He picked up the turntable and looked at the bottom for a serial number. He then went back to police headquarters and found the serial number matched with a report they just got of a stereo being stolen. Hicks was arrested. But Hicks had a crafty lawyer, and the story's not over. The case was tried, appealed, and then made its way to the Supreme Court. Hicks claimed the search of the stereo was illegal. Police had no warrant for that. Well, the state countered, yes, but it wasn't really a search. All we did was pick up a turntable. Well, this criminal defendant, Hicks, would be freed by a surprising power. The judicial philosophy and words of Justice Antonin Scalia a conservative on the court appointed by Reagan, that the text of the Constitution was binding. The the words of the law are what is important. The text. The founders, he said, knew very well what they meant when they put the word seizure in the Fourth Amendment. They knew what a search was. The detective grabbed the turntable and looked. Oh, come on, one could argue. It was hardly a search. They didn't toss around boxes, didn't throw things around, ransack his house. It couldn't matter less, Scalia argued. You can't use the evidence. It's a forgotten side of Antonin Scalia, who passed away last year and who's now been replaced by President Trump's nominee, Neil Gorsuch. It's a forgotten side of Scalia, rigid on prosecutors, using creative charges. Rigid on police who don't follow proper Fourth Amendment seizures. And as blind as he might be to a defendant's plea, in some cases, he was not one, for instance, to give any special credence to the amount of handwritten notes from prisoners on death row seeking the Supreme Court. As blind as he might be on some issues to defend it, he would be equally severe in these cases. In Kylo versus United States, police used a thermal imaging device to keep tabs on a private home. That's a Fourth Amendment search, he said. Needs a warrant. He had disdain for mail fraud charges that were being used to trip up defendants who may have used a letter in the course of committing a crime, but the use of the letter wasn't a real crime. He took aim at police who put a GPS on a suspected drug dealer's car and tracked the man for months. 
when Clarence Thomas, a person on the court normally associated with Scalia, authored a 2014 decision affirming the actions of police in stopping a car because it matched a 911 description and the police officers smelled marijuana. When Thomas argued that under the totality of circumstances, the police acted correctly? Nonsense, Scalia argued. This opinion is a freedom-destroying cocktail that cops can use to make a stop whenever they choose. There's enough of this forgotten library of Scalia's decisions and dissents in this area that he routinely joked, and he joked with Justice John Paul Stevens, who he sat next to on the court, I ought to be the darling of the criminal defense lawyers. The barn. Ronald Dunn was a bad dude, and agents of the DEA knew it. He bought chemicals, the kind used to make large amounts of drugs. DEA agents observed him buying the chemicals and taking them to his ranch. This was no ordinary, pleasant little ranch. His ranch was protected with several layers of fences, a perimeter fence, and then internal barbed wire fences around his house, wooden fences in other areas, including a barn. Dunn drove in with the chemicals, and at night, agents scaled the fence and looked around the property. Smelling the chemicals, they traced it. There was what looked like a drug laboratory. Then they got a warrant and did a daylight search, found the lab and bags of amphetamines, and charged Ronald Dunn. Ronald Dunn's lawyers argued that everything needed to be thrown out. It was a warrantless search when the DEA agent scaled over his property. And he found an appeals court to agree. The barn could be considered a house, part of the homeowner's land, the land surrounding a home. Home is castle. The case went to the Supreme Court, and a majority overturned the decision. Byron White wrote this 1987 opinion in United States v. Dunn. He applied a four-part test to determine whether a barn could be considered someone's house. First, the distance. In this case, it was 60 yards from the house far away. Secondly, it was enclosed by fence. Third, the barn was being used not for intimate home activities, but for the production, in this case, of drugs. Fourth, the open field test. The barn could be observed from an open field. This is a traditional way that judges since the beginning of American law make decisions. They develop these kinds of tests. Now, Antonin Scalia, in this case, was no darling to the criminal defense lawyers for Dunn. He joined the decision to allow the prosecutor to use that evidence seized in the barn and put this drug manufacturer in jail. It's what he later commented in lectures about his decision on the case that provides the most interesting window into his influential judicial philosophy. Here's what he said. If a barn was not considered the curtailage of a house in 1791 or 1868, unlawful entry into a barn today may be trespass, but not an unconstitutional search and seizure. But is this really useful? Is this how we determine what a barn is? By what it was in 1791? Is a barn a barn? Or is a barn a home? David Strauss, in a Chicago Law Review article, took aim at this statement by Scalia. This is the real problem here. You could have a barn in a rural area, or you could have a barn in a 21st century exurban garden shed. But for Scalia, and for the new entrant into the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, these questions that raise complexity are not applicable. Their theory of using text and reading the meaning of the statutes, consulting a dictionary, not a 
a social science textbook, actually make things easier. Piece of cake, Scalia would say about his method of judging. Abortion, death penalty, no problem. Just read the words in the law. I am not too dull, Scalia said, to realize that new times require new laws, but it's not up to judges to write them. Indeed, Scalia thought he was doing this. The argument against it is that textual reading of law is going to always lead to outdated philosophies, to old decisions, going to trend conservative. It is by its nature hard to think of it as progressive, although it could be, and we'll talk about that in a bit. But here's a point that rarely comes up if we're to hear the defenders of this textualism. What Scalia thought he was doing was defending democracy. Yes, old judges started with common law theory, constructing laws they went as they went forward. But the problem is, he said, the modern trend called democracy. It's simply not compatible with democratic theory to say that laws mean whatever they ought to mean, and unelected judges decide what the law is. Those who are reading the text on the page are defending those legislatures, the Congress people that decide the laws, defending people who engage in debate, preserving democracy. This is all very important right now. Neil Gorsuch has been nominated, put on the Supreme Court, and he is a definitive textualist who feels exactly the same way. Friend of Scalia, but more important, a friend of Scalia's judicial philosophy. Here he goes. Though the critics are loud and the temptations to join them may be many, mark me down too as a believer that the traditional account of judicial role Justice Scalia defended will endure. An assiduous focus on text, structure, and history is essential to the proper exercise of the judicial function. These are all quotes from a speech at Case Western University last year after Antonin Scalia's death. It's confirmed by most legal scholars and analysts that there's some that find a little bit of daylight between Gorsuch and, and Scalia on some really obscure issues like Chevron and how far administrative agencies can go, but we'll save that for another time and see what happens with that. We're getting a Scalia-like textualist more than any other person on the court, perhaps save Thomas. Let's talk about the fish. John Yates was a Florida fisherman who caught and reeled in an undersized grouper. He was caught by authorities managing the fishing and was ordered to keep this fish. He didn't. He tossed it overboard. For doing so, he was prosecuted under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act. Now, that act forbids the destruction of any record, document, or tangible object with the intent to obstruct a federal investigation. What? Applying an Enron scandal-era rule to a fisherman? That's a law that's intended to be about shredding documents. A fish can't apply to that. Yet a strange Supreme Court coalition formed that very much said it could. Elena Kagan, appointed by President Obama, joined with Antonin Scalia, Clarence Thomas, and Anthony Kennedy to hold that the law should be read conventionally. A tangible object that Sarbanes-Oxley calls for is a tangible object, an object that's tangible. Here's what she writes. As the plurality must acknowledge, the ordinary meaning of tangible object is a discrete object that possesses physical form. A fish is, of course, a discrete thing that possesses physical form. And she went pretty far with this. In her footnote, see generally Dr. Seuss, one fish, two fish, red fish, blue fish, 1960. Yet for all of this joking, and this case did attract a lot of laughter, Fisherman Yates was facing 20 years for this 
crime and was only saved by another ideological crisscross on the court when Samuel Alito, appointed by George W. Bush and one of the court conservatives, looked at this and, for his take, found their reading too textual. No, Alito said, reading the statute, this statute only captures items used to record or preserve information, like files, like folders, like computer files. Not fish. He joined with the majority opinion and let Yates go. It couldn't matter less about the fish. For those in the conservative judicial movement, for those in the Federalist Society where there's been a project, as Neil Gorsuch called it, to move the law forward in a more textual direction where judges don't consider outcomes of the defendant and plaintiff or society at large, where judges consider the statute, what was written, what the people who passed it thought it meant, what people in society at the time it passed thought it meant, and that's it. We're all textualists now, said Elena Kagan at a dinner honoring Antonin Scalia's memory. We're all textualists now. And you can't help but understand the revolution that people like Scalia or Gorsuch bring and that there can be this feeling of new vibrance, of change in the law, of breaking down what had been complicated tests and theories and precedent can lead to a sigh of relief in justices, a new kind of confidence. Scalia was a very confident justice, and when he opposed others. He wouldn't save the verbiage. When he disagreed with Sandra Day O'Connor in the past, he used a passage from her previous decision in an abortion case against her on another one and used it in his dissent. He got personal and sometimes at the expense of building coalitions in the court. But it comes out of this having this real foundation and this confidence anchored in plain text. And it's also a philosophy that goes way back with another practitioner that couldn't be any more different politically. Florida, 1933. An elderly white man was robbed and killed, and police wanted to know who did it and wrap up the crime quickly. They knew what to do. They rounded up 20 to 40 African-American men without warrants and put them in the Broward County Jail, making them unable to talk to lawyers, unable to talk to even relatives, and questioned by teams of 6 to 10 police officers, threatened with violence, threatened with other punishments. Day two, day three, day four, day five. And as court records show, on day six, four of the men broke and gave the police the confession that they wanted. Even there, when the prosecutor was woken up, he wanted a stronger confession. And so they got that too. It took seven years. But the case was appealed, their convictions were appealed, and it made it all the way to the Supreme Court. At the time, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes was, uh, was chief. And he had run in the 1916 election against uh, Wilson, and he replaced William Howard Taft. He was still on the court at this time. He gave the decision to a new judge, Hugo Black former senator from Alabama, ally of Franklin Roosevelt, but someone who had been scandalized during his hearings. There were rumors, but they were never confirmed during his nomination hearings that Hugo Black had been a member of the Ku Klux Klan in Alabama. It was not till after he was sworn into the court that the story was published in a Pittsburgh newspaper that confirmed that Hugo Black had been in meetings, and not just a few meetings, he had made over a hundred speeches 
and Klan rallies. He explained that this was the early 1920s, both to get ahead as a lawyer in his legal practice, to be seem reasonable to juries in Alabama, and to get ahead in politics. He had to join this organization, but he quit as soon as he politically could. Nonetheless, opponents, including the NAACP, were bitter about Black's nomination. This is why Chief Justice Hughes handed the decision to Hugo Black in the case of Chambers v. Florida and said, if you write the decision, I'll get to court for you. The court was unanimous, and it was a stunning decision overturning the convictions of these four African-American men. Hugo Black wrote, Today, as in ages past, we are not without a tragic proof that the exalted power of some government to punish manufactured crime dictatorially is the handmaid of tyranny. He's writing this in 1940 as the Nazis are sweeping across Europe. Under our constitutional system, courts stand against any winds that blow as havens of refuge for those who might otherwise suffer because they are helpless, weak, outnumbered, or because they're non-conforming victims of prejudice and public excitement. It was cheered, as Hugo Black's entire career on the court would be among progressives, among the NAACP civil rights groups. Throughout his career, which lasted into the 1970s, he would oversee the breaking of racial segregation in decision after decision. Hugo Black had been appointed by Franklin Roosevelt, yet many legal scholars look back and see that he shares something with Reagan appointees Antonin Scalia. His desire to go back to the text of the law, particularly the Constitution, particularly the Bill of Rights, and see the words on the page. He's famous for saying, Make no law means make no law. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Just a quick note, if you go to the website at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com, there's a couple things there for you. One is I'm going to have an article about the topic that I'm talking about right now, Hugo Black, previous Supreme Court justice who had a long career on the court from the New Deal era to the 1970s, and about him and his liberal textualism. Also, y'all remember, in a previous episode, we had David Priest on. We've gotten a really good response to David Priest and that interview. There's a link there to his book, The President's Book of Secrets. You can get more information on that. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com He rejected the view that the court offers a faster and more desirable resolution of our problems than the legislative and executive branch. Struck back 
and what he felt was the rewriting of the Constitution by judges under the guise of interpreting it. In that, he was in good company with Scalia, and he'd be in good company with Gorsuch. Though his aim may have been different, at that time, judges coming in from the from the late 19th century forward had constructed so many different rules and balancing tests that they had eroded some of the Bill of Rights. And one huge area is in economic due process or in the right of contract. That almost anything that a government would do would be subject to it being a violation of the Constitution because there's an unwritten right of contract. People have the right to contract in any way they want, even if they give up constitutional rights in the process. He didn't like how many judges were using a reasonableness test to decide if they could knock down government legislation. To Hugo Black, all anyone had to do was look to the Constitution. If there's a need to balance individual liberties and government activities and needs, the Constitution already settles the conflict. Let's take a look at the 14th Amendment. I'm not a law professor, though I play one on the podcast from time to time, and you're not a legal student, but we're going to do our best with this. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. You know, I think when you just hear those words like that, just read, it's kind of boring and you won't remember it. So, all right, join with me. We're going to sing Section 1 of the 14th Amendment. All persons born or naturalized in the United States subject to the jurisdiction thereof. All citizens of the United States, the state where they reside, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge privileges or immunities. Citizens of the United States, shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, and property without due process of law. Without due process of law. No deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws protection of the law. Due process there can be taken two ways. Does it mean you can't deprive me by passing any law, you can't deprive me of my property and my liberty through the law that you pass, even if a majority passes it? Or does it mean that the police and the courts, the instruments of the law, are the ones that have to give me due process? That's the difference between due process and substantive due process. Hugo Black agreed with the former that the key words in the 14th were of law. And it's a view that Neil Gorsuch would agree with. Gorsuch called substantive due process a murky area and very much uncharted. Yet on the other side, these murky things that Hugo Black or Neil Gorsuch would attack are the basis of modern law as many of us Americans now understand it, particularly precedents involving privacy. They may have been muddy when used in the 60s, kind of like a mortar, but now they're a brick wall of law. 
And so there's always an element, whether it's Black attacking the judicial pains of the past or Gorsuch now attacking what judges are doing. Textualism offers a way to fly over precedent, to fly over decisions that have been made past. Hugo Black was adamant about his approach, even where it ran into politics that he didn't agree with. Big case for him was Griswold versus Connecticut. Right? Griswold was the executive director of Planned Parenthood in Connecticut. And this is in the 1960s. The organization gave out contraceptive information and advice. That was in de- violation of a law that was written in Connecticut at the time that said no one could give advice for any activity that would reduce conception. The majority of the Supreme Court in Griswold v. Connecticut found this law to be unconstitutional. That it violated the intent of the Bill of Rights, if not the written word. Hugo Black dissented. The law is every bit as offensive to me as it is to my brethren of the majority. There is not a single one of the graphic and eloquent criticisms aimed at the policy to which I cannot subscribe, except their conclusion that these evil qualities make the law unconstitutional. I like my privacy as much as the next one, but it's something I am nevertheless compelled to admit that government has a right to invade. Black wasn't alive for the Roe v. Wade decision, but his opinion in Griswold lets you know where he would have likely been. Now, before we go too far with this connection between Scalia and Hugo Black, let us remember Hugo Black was eviscerated by conservatives of his time and his views on racial segregation against prayer in schools. Some of his Scalian-like Fourth Amendment criminal defense rulings earned the ire of conservatives. Uh, This was a judge that was not really welcome back in the state of Alabama where he had been a senator for much of his life. Textualists also tend to gravitate towards something else that's very clear in the Constitution, but not so clear sometimes in judge-made decisions after that. And that's the use of executive power, really the separation of the branches. President does the executive, the Congress does legislative. Both are pretty strict here. Most notably, Hugo Black wrote the decision in Korematsu versus the United States, which many look back on now with disgust. Black never really recanted his decision. I mean, he he explained it as, of course, a decision that was made during wartime when we were at war with the Japanese Empire and feared an invasion of the West Coast. But he saw it as deference to executive power during an emergency when executive and military authority needed to be deferred to. This type of reasoning puts Black exactly in the same place as Scalia in Morrison v. Olson. Scalia dissented that a that the Congress cannot create a prosecutor who can investigate without the president running that prosecutor. That's the executive branch needs to execute the laws Congress needs to make them. Religious cases would be one area where there's differences. I mean, there's a lot of differences between Black and Scalia or Gorsuch. Black saw a wall of separation between religion and state. Scalia really hasn't done that. So, It's shocking, perhaps, that a liberal justice and a conservative justice would agree to a method of inquiry, if not every result. Yet there is a key area of methodological difference, and that's important to understanding the modern textualist movement. That is that uh, Antonin Scalia acknowledged that sometimes words are ambiguous. And so it's necessary to add the color of tradition to inform those words. Tradition, he once said, if used properly and understood properly, would enable the judge to understand how majorities viewed things at the time they enacted the law and what society thought the law that they were going to have to listen to meant in that time period. He even made a comment that if you do tradition right, it's now 
the tradition that's going to judge the judge and not the other way around. This has led to some really controversial statements from him. His dissent in Lawrence v. Texas, where he accused the court of buying into the homosexual culture and the homosexual lobby. How many times and in various decisions that he's supported uh, one point of view because majorities never changed it. So majorities for years have not promoted same-sex marriage in all the states. They have in some. Why should the court do it now? Abortions were banned for a long time in history. The tradition is clear. And things like benedictions at public school graduations are supported by long-standing traditions. So even though they might be in conflict with the First Amendment sometimes, they're okay. Hugo Black, it's likely, would not have agreed with that. There's a criticism from uh, Michael Gerhardt, a Boston University Law Review professor, and on the website www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics, we're going to post a link to this journal article, A Tale of Two Textualists. Boston University Law Review article, Michael Gerhardt, 1994, said, The mistake of textualists, such as Justices Black and Scalia, is that they have failed to acknowledge the degree to which They've reached beyond the text to premises that they have not fully disclosed. He's hinting that both of these justices came from a standpoint, had a, had a set of judicial politics, if not regular politics. You know, uh, Hugo Black decried some of the economic due process and the right to contract cases and the old way of viewing law. Justice Scalia was thinking that judicial activism was too high in some cases. Yet that isn't being worked into the decisions or being disclosed. That's kind of the criticism there. What's the other side of this? There's so much talk about the text. And one of the great things about textualism is that it has this kind of sacredness, the words on the page. On the other hand, one might use other forms of judge-think to decide cases. You can use precedent. What has the court decided before, and how does it match up to what's before us today? This is not as important to justices like uh, Scalia or Black, who would not agree in the concept of stare decisis, let the decision stand, that the courts made a ruling in the past, and so many people have based their lives on it. Business people, individual Americans school administrators, you know, so so much is based on these decisions, how you can't just keep changing it. That's not something Scalia and Black agreed with. If, it, if a case was wrong, it was wrong. You could do as Chief Justice Roberts did and find that if there's a way to hold the law constitutional, you had to try to find it. Thus, his ruling on the Obamacare mandate that it was also a tax since it was collected by the IRS since it involved no jail time, since it had these aspects that would describe it as a tax. Yet, Chief Justice Roberts' decision in the Obamacare case was the farthest thing from Scalian thinking, the farthest thing from textualism, because he added a word that didn't exist in the statute. You could look at how you felt the legislators were thinking when they passed the law, what they thought the law would accomplish, and as a judge, test whether the law is accomplishing that function. Now, that sounds a little like textualism, but it's not. Because the textualist approach is that you look at the words in the page, not what the legislators thought when they were passing. Yes, the, what the legislators thought the words meant and what people following the law would think the words meant at the time, but not what they wanted to accomplish. Not trying to finish the job of legislators in 1868, say or 1791, and say, you know, how do I rule to make the law effective the way that those congresspeople want it? Scalia was a big opponent of legislative intent. One of the cases that he always cited in his lectures that he hated the most was Holy Trinity case. And basically it had been a case that said it was illegal to employ an alien without some proper approval. 
you know, a person from another country without some proper approval. And a church had hired a pastor from another country. The court in Holy Trinity decided that, well, you know, the, the function of the statute wasn't to stop pastors from coming in. So we're going to define that a pastor can't be held to this law. There's nothing in the law that exempts pastors. In fact, the law exempted a few other cases of people, actors, for instance, artists, but it didn't exempt pastors. That's one that Scalia goes back to and says that's where legislative intent began, and it's horribly wrong. Gorsuch has some of the same attacks on Holy Trinity. Don't put yourself in the legislator's shoes. Just read the laws it's written. Uh, you could do, as Justice Breyer has advocated, the premise of active liberty. What result in this decision will best incorporate the original values of the Constitution? What the framers really wanted when they were passing the document? What also will promote the most active liberty, the most participation in government best? You can look at social science, data research, and there are cases in the Supreme Court where it's used. The court has always kind of kept it at a distance, but there are cases where social science has been used, at least part of the justification for the decision has come from statistics from social science. Uh, elements of psychology, for instance, in jury cases are used. All of these things. You see that there's not just one way to decide cases, and a lot of judges use a variety of methods. I even think as much as uh, Scalia when he was alive and Gorsuch now and other textualists are celebrating things that they hear from Elena Kagan say, they may be over-celebrating that a bit. It's often what I think the other side of this is described in debates in, 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 as kind of a hokey way of deciding, a bit strawmanish in my opinion, the living document theory that judges are up there just kind of making a new constitution every day. The constitution's changing, it's being edited by them. But there's more to it than that. Just look at one of these approaches in these cases. Uh, an area where, again, Scalia may be seen as the darling of cr criminal defense lawyers is that he was insistent on the Constitution's call for criminal defendants to confront accusers. And with the victims' rights movement, which may be seen as a conservative movement, there were a lot of cases that were going against Scalia's reading of the text of the Sixth Amendment. When all said and done, and many years pass, I think we'll be looking back on Scalia as someone who contributed to the to the Sixth Amendment. But it's but it's not easy. It sounds good, you know. Criminal defendants need to confront their accusers. But what if this accuser is a child who's an alleged abuse victim? Psychologists say the child could be harmed by the testimony by by seeing the accuser. So some states have allowed videotaped statements. Scalia was against this. The text of the Constitution says defendants get a right to confront accusers. There's two sides here. So is it making up law to allow video testimony? Is it creating your own Constitution? Is it good judicial practice to rely on the words in this kind of a case? As Scalia's doing? I don't seek to answer that really tough legal question, but I think it shows you that things are not so easy as they seem. And it's easy to strawman that kind of living constitution where there's judges keep changing the law, but not thinking about it's also us that are changing. There's a new approach to things. How do we treat children? There's the videotape that didn't exist before. There's the idea that someone had of even using that. Um, Hugo Black, even though he was a textualist, did have a, a statement about technology and how it might change the law when there was a case involving planes flying overhead 
and whether that was in effect a seizure by the government of property. He cautioned against, even though the Constitution clearly says, against search and seizure of property without due process, he cautioned against, maybe with new technology, such as the type of airplanes, you might have to go back and wait for the legislators to write new law on it, even if it seems to be in violation of the text of the Constitution. The vehicle in the park is the classic attack on textualism. It goes like this. A law says there shall be no vehicles allowed in the park. Well, what about an ambulance that enters the park to save a life? An ambulance is a vehicle. Well, a good textualist would say if the word ambulances was to be in the law, the legislators should have put it into the law. And those with other approaches say, yeah, but the best thing for society would be to allow ambulances in the park. And also, and this is, I think, a critique of textualism's deference to legislature. Look, legislatures can't think of everything. There's political compromises. They can't always get every word in. And it's the judge that's dealing with the current situation, the current set of facts as they exist. The legislature has to do forecasting and think about what might be. So, no, we shouldn't assume that there'll always be a provision for an ambulance and a no vehicles in the park law. So what do you do? Classic attack on textualism. Scalia heard it so much over his lifetime that in a 2012 book, he answered the charge saying, ah, the common law defense of necessity would override the statutory text in that case. So they're willing to break a little bit from the, from the text. Brown versus the Board of Education in Topeka, Kansas, is another case that presents problems for textualism and traditionalists particularly. The court overturned a school district segregation. Hugo Black was one of the people that sided with this. No Congress had passed such a law, and nor would a Congress politically be able to do anything like that for another 10 years. The state of Kansas had not overruled Topeka's school district. The legislature there wouldn't be able to get a majority to break what was an unfair law of segregated schools. And most importantly, to a traditionalist approach, Congress in 1868 knew full well that they weren't integrating schools when they passed the 14th Amendment. There's no traditional value there. The court's decision in Brown really amounted to, we have to do this because we have to do this. It used social science. It used the merits. It relied on just very little precedent. I'm tired of hearing about Brown, was the kind of response that you get from Scalia in lectures. Though it's probably not fair to bring somebody like that back in a time like that when those events were going on. One even has to question whether the commitment to textualism would have been tested by somebody in those times with those sorts of things going on. I think the straw man that occurs is that when a justice is not being textual, they are creating law, and a living constitution means the words change. They might be, and in a case-by-case method, that's a fair standard to judge a decision. But we change, too. We grow in population. We do new things as a country. We embrace new technology. We have new majority ideas. We have new perceptions of what words mean. Here's Justice McKenna from way back. I mean, Times work changes, brings into existence new conditions and purposes, a principle to be vital, must be capable of wider application than the mischief which gave it birth. Justice McKenna was uh, appointed by William McKinley, served until 1925. In Graham Florida, the court held that imposing a life sentence on a juvenile for a non-homicide case was a cruel and unusual punishment. I don't know what people would have done in history with that, but it seems reasonable now. Chief Justice Roberts concurred. At odds with Scalia and Clarence Thomas in their dissent, they looked at an Eighth Amendment originalist approach 
It is essentially against like torture, disemboweling, like horrible punishments. But not excessiveness. In his memoir, Five Chiefs, former Justice John Paul Stevens suggested that textual analysis would okay a death penalty for parking tickets. A textualist might argue, yeah, but no legislature is going to do that. The nation got a glimpse of textualism on trial during the Neil Gorsuch hearings. Um, and this is the case well known of the, of the truck driver. The guy, you know, he had freezing cold. Heat's not working in his truck. He calls for help. He actually falls asleep, has to, wakes up and has to call again. It's freezing cold. It's three hours. His truck is operable. His trailer is not. He detaches the trailer and drives away. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— we answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The trucker filed a complaint with the Department of Labor and under a Transportation Assistant Act, there's a prohibition on an employer from firing an employee who refuses to operate a vehicle because the employee has a reasonable apprehension of serious injury to the employee or the public. Well, in this case, he couldn't feel his feet. He was about to be injured. Uh, the heat wasn't working in the vehicle. The agency concluded that he indeed been fired for refusing to operate his vehicle. He had a reasonable apprehension of danger. Gorsuch sides with a trucking company. He did not find the word operate ambiguous at all. No possible meaning beyond driving is reasonable. Since Madden, the trucker, drove his truck, Trans Am, he agreed with the trucking company that he should not be protected by the whistleblower statute. Our job isn't to legislate and add new words that aren't present in the statute. Imagine a boss telling an employee he may either operate an office computer as directed or refuse to operate that computer. What serious employee would take that as a license to use an office computer, for not for work, but to compose the American novel? Good luck, so Gorsuch wrote in his. I think the Trugger case with national exposure gives you the other side of textualism. It seems very defensible, but it's also pretty easy to say that, for instance... The truck driver did not operate the truck because operating the truck consisted of taking the trailer with the cab, which he did not do. I don't think it's a creating a law, and many, many people don't believe it's creating law or adding words to the page to do that. Jason Coggut is a listener who subscribed to the Premium Podcast. Thank you, Jason. The Premium Podcast is available at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. You'll get extra content. Uh, we, we, we produce bonus episodes there that are not heard here. I did one on Gorsuch previously, and so he listened to that and he wrote back to me, Listening to the Gorsuch one today reminded me of another SCOTUS originalist argument that has been gnawing at me for about three years. Maybe you'd have some perspective or possibly one day could make a good podcast topic. Why do the Reconstruction Amendments get just a short shrift? 
When we talk about, say, Scalia believing in originalism, it always comes down to founding fathers and what they intended. But why does it seem like the designers of subsequent amendments don't get the same deference? Okay, thanks, Jason. That's a uh, good one. Uh, Reconstruction, there's always, I think, is is rushed through history. It's because it's a it's the period after the Civil War, but to me, it's just as interesting and just as formative. And those amendments that came from the Reconstruction, the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, Fifteenth, were foundational for modern America, and particularly the Fourteenth is is so utilized in, in law today that it's become so important and stretches over so many different areas. I've talked about it in immigration. We talk about it in criminal law. We talk about it in uh, marriage cases. We talk about it in terms of the debt of the United States. So formative years that created formative legislation, and I think it informs this discussion in a particular way. Because if you look at those Reconstruction Amendments, you'll probably never have a more favorable environment for passing amendments than that. It's really difficult to pass amendments. It has to go through a number of states. 2% of the population, based on the, the right states, could block an amendment. So, we, you know, the, the, the framers were very wise, but I think this is one area where they created a very difficult thing. And really indicated they didn't want the document to change that much, and it really hasn't changed that much. 27 changes since the beginning, 10 of which were pretty much planned during the ratification process. So where does that leave the people and their wants and needs and constantly having to appeal to legislators who are going to have a hard time politically in any period of history getting things done? But the Reconstruction was your one chance because you had this radical alignment due to the Civil War. You had states that were basically taken out of the Union and not allowed back in yet, were allowed back in under the threat of having to pass one of these amendments. Well, that's going to help your amendment uh, quite a bit. You had a a radical, if you will, a Republican Congress that had a huge majority, the likes of which is not seen that often, that could pass these type of amendments. And yet, in those amendments, they couldn't even get everything that they wanted. So even in that radical period, they couldn't get everything they wanted. Just a note on Scalia or Hugo Black or any of these people, when they're talking about textualism or statutes, he is very much talking about the meaning of the statute at the time. So where he was considering 14th cases, to be fair, he was looking at 1868 then instead of 1791 and what the language meant and what the concepts of words used would have meant. I think textualists, though, are going to come down to that substantive due process or not question, and they're going to look at the of law and hold that to be stronger. Uh, Jason goes on. Although I rejoiced and celebrated the Obergefell decision two years ago, I felt the Kennedy's reasoning, the going on about dignity and not rights, was a little airy-fairy. I guess I agreed with Scalia in a sense. That's rare for me. Not that I didn't agree with the decision, but I think Kennedy should have been more forceful on an equal protection under the 14th Amendment standard. Uh, One of the first rights under equal protection that African-American ex-slaves took advantage of en masse was the right to codify their unions. Legal protection of marriage that didn't change plantation to plantation, state to state. Why did no one bring up this obvious historical comparison with the 14th Amendment during arguments. Thanks, Jason. That's a uh, Anthony Kennedy opinion, and I think, generally speaking, you're not going to get a lot of art, you're not going to get a lot of fireworks out of Anthony Kennedy. Um, and we shouldn't remember the history of uh, Kennedy and, and where he fits into things as kind of the, a court's moderate, at least on some decisions. I don't think anybody who's against Citizen United would consider him a moderate since he wrote that decision, uh, off forgotten. Um, he certainly was one that was steadfastly against Judge Roberts' decision on the Obamacare case and against individual mandates. So it's hard to place Anthony Kennedy at times. He was Kennedy's family owned a law firm in Sacramento and were good friends of Governor Reagan then. That was the connection, and Reagan had a hard time after one Justice Bork, who was an extreme conservative, was not approved 
and a second one had to withdraw. Anthony Kennedy was the third uh, nominee, and so they needed somebody to get passed by the Senate, and Kennedy was moderate enough. He's shown an ability to be very practical, but you're not going to get a lot of art out of his decisions. And on the other hand, though, Kennedy is not a textualist in any way. He uses so many of the techniques of judge thinking that I, I gave you earlier. There's sometimes where he considers social science. There's sometimes where he considers the words. There's sometimes where he considers what the impact of the decision is going to be. Kind of balancing tests. What's going to happen after we pass this decision? You know, Kennedy's not one to be happy with having rendered a decision based on reading the statute and then the defendant and plaintiff leave and there's an America left that uh, is going to be affected by his decision. He's going to think about that. He's also someone who's going to build on the previous work of the court and not stick out too far. And I think he found it easy to do in this case. Cited Griswold versus Connecticut, citing Loving versus Virginia, Lawrence v. Texas, that there's a right to privacy and the court and the Constitution protects certain personal decisions. There's four reasons that he, he said, you know, that there's a right to personal choice regarding marriage. There's a fundamental right to marry that he didn't feel he was establishing in this decision. It had already been established. It's probably why you don't hear as much rights talk. That it safeguards children and families. And that marriage is a keystone of our social order. If you don't allow marriages, you're limiting society, you're limiting social order. These were his his reasons. The court found there's no difference between same and opposite sex couples with respect to this principle. One reason why I think he, he, he doesn't go on and on that there's a right maybe specifically for same-sex marriages in the decision and might dance around that is he has a line that if he, we start naming specific groups and say that they have a right that you can't use this decision later than as, as precedent as easily as you would be able to otherwise. So we wanted to make the decision more of a universal fundamental one. Scalia's take on that decision was that the court had effectively robbed the people of their freedom to govern themselves. The rigorous debate was going on. It was taking place. Some states were for it. Some states were against it. And the democratic process had been unduly halted by the court. He went back into tradition. Scalia asserted that because a same-sex marriage ban would not have been considered unconstitutional, at the time of the 14th Amendment's adoption, such bans are not unconstitutional today. So there's a final comment to make, I think, about textualists, and we'll see how it, it shakes out with, the, with Neil Gorsuch. Is you definitely have two different personalities there. I mean, I think one of the people, even people who didn't agree, it's, it's sort of obvious that a lot of people liked how colorful or explosive some of the language that Scalia would use. Um, his decisions were entertaining to read if you, if you didn't agree with them. And then you have Gorsuch, who seems a little more plain, although I notice a little turn of phrase in, in some of the things he's written. But his personality, his demeanor seems calmer. One of the criticisms of Scalia, this also was the case with Hugo Black, is that they couldn't form coalitions on the court because they were abrasive. The funny thing is that at the same time, uh, Scalia was really good friends with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and also uh, was developing uh, a friendship with uh, Alina Kagan. So, you know, I think there's this mismatch. Like, he was personally friendly, but he would be so aggressive on the court that I think people like Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor, in some cases, just couldn't side with him on the on the issues. So part of being on that court and the way it operates is being a consensus builder. You don't just make your decisions in a dark room. There's a lot of talking that goes on. There's a lot of kind of coalition building. How are you going to word a, de a decision? And so, again, you were calling for maybe a more strongly worded decision. You just don't know to what extent uh, that has to do with keeping Kennedy or keeping that coalition intact. The coalition of, of what they think the law is and what, what they think the decision will hold. And it's not always like 
I want my way to proceed. It's also like I want to write a good law that's going to stick around for a while, and this is what I think it is. So I call them coalitions, but they're not like this isn't like a little mini Congress. The Supreme Court operates as a deliberative body, and they talk, and the staffers talk. It's very collegial. But textualists, at least Black and Scalia, just tended to do very badly with forming coalitions on the court. And somebody like a Kennedy, and with his really mixed approach, you may not get the fireworks, but that guy's responsible for more law right now and for how the high laws of society are are implemented than anybody on the court. And we'll see if Gorsuch also joins him. I want to thank you for listening. I know it's a long one. Legal stuff, you know, it's a, this, is, this is a difficult concept to explain, but it's one that I hope you're richer for. Maybe go back and listen to it again. If you do like the program, please tell someone about it. www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics is the website, and we've got the premium podcast right up there. There's that article on Hugo Black. If you like this program, you'll like more of it. Premium podcast, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Thanks for listening. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 